Good morning. I'm David, one of the pastors here at Remedy. Our text this morning is Psalm 146. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's be seated, please, and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and as we come into your presence this morning, we ask that you move through your word, that it not return void, but Father, that you would accomplish all that you desire. Father, we come to you um, united in, in Christ, but recognizing that we're individually in a lot of different places. Some of us are in a place of sadness and feeling loss. Others of us may be in a dry place spiritually. For others, we feel vulnerable or weak. Or perhaps we're expectant, looking to you to see what you're up to and what you're doing next. Others of us are just ready to worship you. So Father, I pray that wherever we are, that you would meet us there. That Father, you would stir our affections for Jesus that you would stir our souls to hope in you. Father, I pray that we would love you more, that we would love one another better. And Father, we pray that you would transform us to the image of your son, Jesus. Amen. So today is our last day of the summer in the Psalms. Next week, we'll be starting the Gospel of John. I think it's fitting that in God's sovereignty, he, we chose this Sunday to, be, uh, uh, to preach on Psalm 146. And this was just months and months ago. But it's really interesting because the topic of this psalm is hope. When we encounter troubled times, when we just feel like we can't go on, how do we stir up our soul to hope in God. In the book of Psalms, the final five, 146 through 150, are called the Alleluia Psalms because each of these Psalms begins with the Hebrew words that, that are, mean hallelujah. Um, the bookends, they're like bookends, really, on, on these Psalms. Uh, Charles Spurgeon called these Psalms the delectable mountains. In Hebrew, the first two words are halel, a verb which means to shine or praise, 
and Yah, a contraction or shortened form of the word Jehovah. So literally, Hallel Yah means praise Jehovah, or it's transliterated as Hallelujah. Psalm 146 tells us to stir up our souls to hope in God. And like the other Alleluia Psalms, it calls believers to worship God, to praise Jehovah. Spurgeon says, when we praise God, let us arouse our inmost self, our central life. We have but one soul. And if it be saved from eternal wrath, it is bound to praise its Savior. Come heart, mind, thought, come my whole being, my soul, my all, be all on flame with joyful adoration. You know, for a time I believed that human emotions weren't all that important in the Christian life. I had been told that human emotions were like the caboose on a train, and the train could run with or without the caboose. But that's not what I see in Scripture. I see the great commandment telling us to love God with our whole being, our mind, and emotions. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew twenty two thirty seven, I see an angel at the birth of Christ bringing good news of great joy that shall be to all people. Paul tells us that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. The chief end of man is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. Human emotion isn't our authority. It doesn't lead our reason. It follows it. Our emotions are not the object of our trust. But scripture engages the whole person, mind and emotions. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, no idea or attitude or theory or doctrine is of any value that does not inflame the heart and stir the affections in love and joy and fear of God. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. In other words, our response to hearing the good news of the angel's announcement should be great joy. The result of the Holy Spirit working in our life should be the spiritual fruit of joy. Our hearts should be moved to worship by the person and work of Christ. Our response to the great commandment should be to love God with our whole self, mind, and emotions. So what do we do when people we love move away from us and we just feel sadness, or when we have a dry spell in our spiritual life, when our affections for God are lukewarm and our hope in him is no longer a burning flame, how do we pursue hope in God? In Psalm 146, the psalmist gives us three ways to stir up our souls to hope in God. First, through worship. Second, by trusting in him alone. And third, by meditating on his word. So we'll see the first way through worship in verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Like the psalmist, we engage ourselves to worship God. Notice the psalmist is proactively talking to himself. He's taking himself in hand. He's talking to his soul. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, have you realized that 
most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are, talking to you. Now, the psalmist's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. I don't know about you, but my self-talk can be pretty self-centered at times. I can throw an amazing pity party, but somehow I'm the only one that ever shows up. In contrast, though, the psalmist gives us an example to follow. He proactively turns his thoughts towards God. He talks to himself. And what does he say? He tells himself to praise the Lord. Have you ever gone to church weighed down by the troubles of the week? And yet you emerge from the gathering of the saints with renewed hope. The troubles are still there, but they seem smaller because you have reminded yourself through worship of the greatness of God. Worshiping God gives us perspective. It reminds us of the object of our hope and gives us cause for rejoicing. In verse 1, the psalmist commands us all to worship God. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Then he commands himself, praise the Lord, O my soul. Then twice more, the psalmist resolves to praise God. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The psalmist resolves to be a worshiper his whole life. He resolves to finish well. The apostle Paul finished well. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. One thing about growing older is that I am increasingly aware of my own mortality. More and more friends my age have passed away. Susan and I had a friend pass away last summer named Heather. When she was given her cancer diagnosis and told she only had a few months to live, her response was that her goal was to die well. She would walk the path that she had been given in a way that would bring him glory and then go running into the arms of Jesus. As her body slowly shut down, she would always pray for his will, his plan, his way, despite the suffering and pain. To the very end, she was a worshiper of God. People would go to her to encourage her and come away encouraged by her joyful hope in God. Psalm 90.12 says, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. We're to number our days. We're to make them count. I used to think that meant doing more, accomplishing more things, checking more things off the list. But what does the psalmist resolve to do? He resolves to worship. Charles Spurgeon says, I cannot tell how long or short my life may be, but every hour of it shall be given to the praises of my God. While I live, I'll love. While I breathe, I'll bless. It is but for a while, and I will not while that time away in idleness, 
but consecrate it to that same service which shall occupy eternity. As our life is the gift of God's mercy, it should be used for his glory. Like the psalmist, we should resolve to finish well, to be worshipers our whole life while we still draw breath. The psalmist also resolves to worship by singing praises. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. When we remind ourselves of who God is from, our, from his word, our natural response is to sing and to worship him. Here at Remedy, we exegete the word of God together, and then we have a time of corporate worship. It's our response to looking into God's word. We engage our mind and emotions. Worship stirs our souls to hope in God. The second way we stir our souls to hope in God is to trust him. We put our trust in God alone. If if you want to stir your soul to hope in God, don't put your trust in something or someone else. Verses 3 to 5. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The psalmist starts with an example of what not to put your trust in. Put not your trust in princes. He could have just as easily have said a pastor or family or intelligence or good looks or modern medicine or any good gift of God. Any gift rather than the giver. Anything or anyone that gets the glory that belongs to God who is blessed forever. The phrase God of Jacob is rich with meaning. It reminds us that he is a God of wrestling prayer. He is a covenant-keeping God. Unlike human princes, our God is eternal. His plans don't die with him. There is help and salvation in the Lord, not in people. He does not fail those who trust him, who put their hope in him. We use the word hope in a lot of ways. We may use it as a verb. I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow when it may or may not rain. Or as a noun, a good tailwind is the only hope that our flight will arrive on time. Again, it may or may not occur. That's not how the psalmist uses the word hope here. Biblical hope is moral certainty that the thing desired will occur. For example, if I ask Pastor Chris or Pastor Joe to pray with me about something, I have a strong moral clarity that they would be willing to do that. Not just willing, but would do it gladly. There's a certainty that comes from knowing their character. John Piper says, Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There is a moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. Piper goes on, connecting hope and faith. Faith is our confidence in the word of God, and whenever that word has reference to the future, you can call our confidence in it hope. Hope is faith in the future tense. 
In other words, whenever faith in God looks to the future, it can be called hope. And whenever hope rests on the word of God, it can be called faith. As an example from scripture, uh, we can look at Romans 4. The Apostle Paul talks about the saving faith of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were past the age of childbearing. But Romans 4, 18 and 19 says, In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So in the middle of explaining that Abraham was saved by faith and not by works, the Apostle Paul talks about hope. In hope, Abraham believed what was humanly impossible. By doing that, he demonstrated faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So when the psalmist says that we are blessed when we put our hope in the Lord, it isn't wishful thinking. There's a confidence that it will happen because it is in keeping with the character of God. We stir our soul to hope in him by putting our trust, our faith, in him alone, by making him the object of our hope. Here's some questions to help with the application of this truth. Who or what are the princes that you put your trust in? When you think about the future, where does your help come from? Is the object of your hope something or someone other than the Lord? Are you looking at the gift rather than the giver? We stir our souls to hope in God by putting our trust in him alone. The third way to stir our souls to hope in God is to meditate on God's word. The psalmist doesn't use the word meditation here, but that's exactly what he's doing. In verses 6 through 10, we see the psalmist's meditation on why he should trust in God, why he should hope in him. He lists 12 reasons. In doing so, he's demonstrating meditation on God's word. Now, the word meditation is a good word. It's used a lot in scripture. The words meditation, meditate, or meditates are used 23 times in the ESV. At the beginning, uh, if you'll remember, in Summer in the Psalms, we started with Psalm 1, and we saw that it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So unfortunately, the word meditation carries a lot of baggage for some. A number of Eastern religions claim that they are meditating by advocating mental passivity, emptying the mind. But biblical meditation calls us to actively exert our mental energy, to talk to ourselves. If you're not reading scripture every day, you need to start there. That's a place to start. But in your journey toward maturity, you should begin to interact with scripture, to have the living and active word of God speak into your life by meditating on it. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Since God's word is living and active, it carries the power of life, the power of transformation if we interact with it. Matt Chandler says, let's not read the Bible like we read a newspaper. Let's not knock out a chapter real quick. Take the psalm where the Lord watches over the paths of the righteous. Stop and think about what it means. The Lord watches over our path. There's nothing coming today that he doesn't see, doesn't make provision for. So let's slow down. Find a nugget in the word and let's meditate on it and own it and thank God for it and look for evidence of it as we walk through our day. The objective of meditation is the application of scripture to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It helps us to obey and delight in him. The Lord said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Jerry Bridges says, to meditate on scriptures, to think about them, turning them over in our minds and applying them to our life's situations. Bridges continues with an example of meditation. Suppose you are meditating on 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. As you think about the chapter, you realize the importance of love and you also see the practical outworkings of love. Love is patient and kind and does not envy. You ask yourself, am I impatient? or unkind, or envious toward anyone? As you think about this, you realize that you are envious toward Joe at work, who seems to be getting all the breaks. You confess this sin to God, being very specific to name Joe, and your sinful reaction to his good fortune. You ask God to bless him even more, and to give you a spirit of contentment, so that you will not continue to envy Joe, but will instead love him. By way of application, meditation is a spiritual discipline that we need in our life. We need to go beyond reading scripture real quickly. We need to study it, to think about it, to meditate on it, and allow God to speak into our lives. If you're just starting out with meditation, it might be helpful to have a model to follow. Here's a model I really like because it comes from scripture itself. In Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So when you study a text of scripture, you ask, what is true about this? Or what truth does it exemplify? What is honorable about this? What is just or right about this? What is pure about this or how does it exemplify purity what is lovely and commendable and excellent about this what is praiseworthy about this and how can i praise god right now as you study god's word stop and ask these questions biblical meditation isn't difficult or mysterious it's taking the truth of scripture and thinking about it contemplating it allowing the holy spirit to convict you and apply it to your life. Psalmist did that. He recognizes the truth that the person whose hope is in the Lord is blessed. 
he then lists reasons he should hope in God. First, God is creator, verse 6, who made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. The psalmist seems to be thinking of the creation account, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He may also be thinking of the creation of the sea and the sea creatures. Or he could be referring to the sea as the prophets later do to mean a multitude of people. Walter Kaiser says the sea may refer to more than a large body of water. It may stand for a multitude of people as it does in Daniel 7, 2 and 3, out of which the four world empires arise. Whether it's people or water, the principle is the same. We can trust God because he is the creator. He made it all. Surely he can take care of me. Spurgeon says, wisely may we trust our creator. Justly may we expect to be happy in so doing. He who made the heaven can make a heaven for us and make us fit for heaven. He who made the earth can preserve us while we are on earth and help us to make good use of it while we sojourn upon it. He who made the sea and all its mysteries can steer us across the pathless deeps of a troubled life and make it a way for his redeemer to pass over. This God who still makes the world by keeping it in existence is assuredly able to keep us to his eternal kingdom and glory. The making of the world is the standing proof of the power and wisdom of that great God in whom we trust. The second reason we can hope in God is because he is faithful. Verse 6, who keeps faith forever. To me personally, this is the most compelling reason to hope in God. He has been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future. Some of you know that I have a family member who is the victim of dementia. John Dunlap, MD, in his book, Finding Grace in the Face of Dementia, says that 5% of Americans will have dementia by age 65, and the number will double roughly every seven years. Doing the math tells us that by age 90, nearly half will have some form of dementia. So as I walk through this dreaded disease with my family member, what keeps me from despair? What brings me hope? It's the knowledge of the faithfulness of God. He has shown his faithfulness over and over again. He will give us grace in this as well. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In verses 7 through 9, we see even more reasons to hope in God. These are related to God's justice and how he provides for those in special need of his care. The bookends for this section start in verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed, and ends in verse 9, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. If we think about the psalmist meditating on hope in God, he may wonder about the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the sojourners, the widows and orphans. What about them? When our circumstances are really bad, can we hope in God? The answer is a resounding yes. Verses 7 to 9 say, Who executes justice for the oppressed? 
who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Spurgeon said, He is a friend of the downtrodden, the avenger of the persecuted, the champion of the helpless. Safely may we trust our cause with such a judge, if it be a just one. Happy are we to be under such a ruler. Are we evil entreated? Are our rights denied us? Are we slandered? Let this console us that he who occupies the throne will not only think upon our case, but stir himself to execute judgment on our behalf. After John the Baptist was imprisoned, he sent men to Jesus to ask if he was the Messiah. Jesus replied by describing what he had just been doing that they had observed. And it was in fulfillment of prophecy. Luke seven twenty two and 23 says, And he, Jesus, answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The reason we can put our hope in God is because he is a champion of the helpless. But God has gone far beyond our temporal needs. He has provided a remedy for the root cause of our sin problem in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we continue meditating on the Psalms, let's see what that might look like from this side of the cross. Let's think about how Jesus gives us reason to hope in God. The psalmist says, God gives food to the hungry. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The psalmist says, the Lord sets the prisoners free. You know what? That's us. We were prisoners, slaves to sin, under the tyranny of Satan. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1, 13. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. We were blind, in darkness, with no spiritual understanding. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. John eight twelve. We were bowed down by the burden of sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2.24 The psalmist says God loves the righteous. The problem is, none of us are righteous. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10 But we are given the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3.22 if we ever doubt his love for us, if we ever wonder, does God really love me? Meditate on the cross. It was on the cross that he demonstrated his love to us for all eternity. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves the righteous. That means that God loves us because we were given the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin.
We hope in God because he is the righteous judge. As 1 Peter 4, 5 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We come to the final verse, verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Unlike the prince whose plans perish when he draws his last breath, God's kingdom is eternal. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary to foretell the birth of Christ, he said in Luke 1, 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. How does Psalm 146 point us to Christ? Unlike human princes, he is the one in whom we can put our trust. We're blessed when we put our trust in him for all the reasons listed by the psalmist. He is the hope of Israel, and he is our hope as, as well. First, Timoth- uh, First Peter I'm sorry, 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In closing, what do we do when we encounter troubled times? When we just feel like we can't go on, when we're undergoing a dry spell in our spiritual life, when our affections for God are lukewarm and our hope in him is no longer a burning flame, how do we stir our souls to hope in God? Like the psalmist, we take ourselves in hand and engage ourselves to worship God. We trust in God alone, putting our hope in the giver, not the gift. Finally, we stir our souls to hope in God by meditating on his holy, eternal word. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word, I pray that you will indeed stir our souls to hope in you. Use this time of uh, worship, Father, to uh, stir us up. Help us, Father, to, to look to you alone, not to the gift, but to the giver. We thank you, Father, that you have done all of these things for us. And we trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.